everybody. Welcome to That's Life, where things have been so nutty for the last few days. I'm just happy I still know my name. Good morning, folks. Thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We are coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side. Nachum had a good time announcing this morning that it's supposed to hit 91 degrees here in New York. And of course, I've me that is significant because he kept on referring to it as 91.1 degrees. Yeah, cute. Very cute. Very cute. Yes. All good. But yeah, it's supposed to be 91 degrees here in New York. That's pretty toasty. The uh, dog days of summer are upon us. Rapidly, rapidly upon us. I'm joined by Jamie at the desk and Avram behind the board. What's up, Avram? How are you? I am well. Could you lower my cans a little bit? Uh, I'll try. Yeah. Um, how was your commute? It was uh, it was pretty pleasant, thank God. I think you got more sleep than I did last night. Uh, well, it's three hours, but it's bus hours, so it's not It's straight. not like dog years, buddy. It's not like dog years. Oh, so it's not straight. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's all good. It's all good, as we like to say around here. If you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. If you are a returning listener, thanks, as always, for making us part of your day. Let's follow us on Twitter. Nachum Siegel Net, all one word. Miriam L. Wallach, also all one word. National holidays, by the way, in the United States are quite funny today, Avram. I don't want to bypass them. It's Corn on the Cob Day, which I'm sure will be celebrated at the Wallach household. Okay, that's really low now. Now I don't hear anything. That's good. Perfect. Thank you. National Corn on the Cob Day is today. It will be celebrated at the Wallach household as opposed to National Cotton Candy Day, which will not, not be celebrated at the Wallach household. It's also uh, Banana Split Days begins tomorrow. I'm not a fan, but that's okay. Um, tomorrow, by the way, also we should just note that it's Crowded Nest Awareness Day, which at the Wallach household they complain about on a daily, daily basis. Yeah, I'm crying for you, Wallach children. I am just crying for you. Tomorrow is also National Peanut Butter Cookie Day, which I highly recommend we all take part in. Do you know what I tell my guests, by the way, when I make peanut butter cookies for Shabbos and they look at me like, are those peanut butter cookies? I'm like, don't worry, they're high in protein. If you tell somebody (laughs) that something is high in protein, the fat content doesn't matter nearly as much. And tomorrow is also Superman Day. We would not want to forget that. You can break out your capes tomorrow. You have until tomorrow morning, folks, to find your Superman capes so you can celebrate Superman Day. I want to make sure to do a fortune cookie and a thank you to listener Judy who made sure to restock the uh, fortune cookie supply. (laughs) She somehow or another didn't manage to help me not knock it off the table right now, off the desk. But anyway, uh, thank you, listener Judy. I appreciate your supply. And here we go, Avram. You ready? ready. Chances are present to make huge personal gains. Okay, I think that was a fat joke. Anyway, that's fine. That's fine, because we have so much to talk about that I'm walking off the fortune cookie, because one of my favorite people joins me on the air this morning. There is there's maybe one other person who falls into this category, but uh, Professor Jeffrey Gurak, the Libby Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University, he is the author of Jews in Gotham, New York Jews in a Changing City, which won the 2012 Jewish Book of the Year Award from the Jewish Book Council, and most recently... He is the author of The Holocaust Averted, an alternate history of American Jewry from 1938 to 1967, as if to say, what if the Holocaust never happened? But that is not what we're talking about this morning, are we, Professor? Good morning. You're very kind. It's uh, very nice to speak to your community again. Oh, it's absolute pleasure, because as I, was, as I said at the, at the beginning of the intro, there's only one other person who is in the same category as people I love to talk to about sports. I hope it's your husband. Um, no, it's not, because he's a Met fan, uh-huh. Professor. Oh, I, I didn't know. to hear that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I didn't know that before we got married. These are the things you learn about a person when you live with them. 
But, so. Exactly. But it's all good. Thank God. It's all good. But either way, there's so much going on in sports right now, and especially with Game 4 of the NBA Finals tonight, um, that there, there was no way we were going to be able to bypass this conversation because I don't remember the last time there were this many Jews and Israelis excited about the NBA Finals, but with Coach David Blatt and his ca- Cleveland Cavaliers in the Finals, and of course with LeBron, there is a tremendous amount of pride, an Israeli of, of excitement in Israel um, as they refer to him as King David or David Blatt's Cavaliers, as if they didn't exist beforehand, which is such a classic thing that I that I just wanted to bring it bring you on and to talk about this because I have to be honest, Professor, and I'm sure I'm going to get excoriated for this, but frankly, I don't get what the big deal is. You see, I can't get, uh, on a certain level, I can't get my arms around this either, to tell you the truth, because on the one hand, you know, there's a long history of Jewish coaches involved in the NBA. In fact, you can say that Jewish coaches have won more championships than any other ethnic or racial group in the United States. If you add all the championships that Red Auerbach got with the Celtics and the two, the lamented two uh, championships that the Knicks got 40-some-odd years ago, you have more championships than even Phil Jackson won. So I'm, I'm not exactly, so on one level, I'm not exactly sure what this is all about. But perhaps, perhaps, it has something to do with, uh, and, and by the way, there are no Jews playing on the, uh, on the team. <laughs> My last look, LeBron James is not uh, of our faith. <laughs> so what is this all about? Right. So maybe, only maybe, and, and by the way, uh, apparently, the Prime Minister of the State of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, called Blatt and wished them well. Right. That was actually and, covered in the New York Times. Yeah, I also heard that uh, Nachum Siegel, uh, son, one of his children, yep. said that uh, Blatt is on a first-name basis with Bibi, and so are most Israelis. Exactly. So, that was a great quote the other night, because during Game 3, one of the sportscasters mentioned on the air that it was noted in an article that Coach Blatt is on a first-name basis with the Prime Minister of the State of Israel, to which Nahum's son responded, yeah, everybody's on a first-name basis. Right, exactly. right, right. So one other factoid before I render some sort of opinion on this. Sure. I, I think last year the um, Maccabee Tel Aviv won one of, one, one of the uh, European championships, and the Israelis are very excited, even though I believe there are no only one or two Israeli citizens on the team. They're all imported talent from the United States. And one of the jokes that's going around about uh, the Cavaliers is win or lose, it's very possible that Israelis will see many of the other players of the Cavaliers uh, in Israeli uniforms because they're really not great players. <laughs> they're being led by an extraordinary basketball player named LeBron James. Right who, from a basketball perspective, is perhaps as good as anyone we've ever seen uh, at this point. So what is this all about? Well, one thought that comes to mind is that, you know, when I write about sports, I write about the fact that uh, sports, like military activities, are community-defining situations. Are you in and are you out has a lot to do with whether or not you're allowed to play for your team, for your country, or on the world stage. Sadly, at this point, for a variety of reasons, we know all these reasons, Israel feels a tremendous degree of isolation, Mm. and isolation even in the sports venue. So to have an Israeli, or an American Israeli, um, an American who made Aliyah succeed in the basketball basketball realm, 
just like Maccabi Tel Aviv has won this championship, is a source of um, consolation, pride, and excitement for the, uh, for the Israeli public. I don't know what the Jews of San Francisco are thinking about this at this point, <laughs> but uh, I think it has something to do with our sense that, sadly, you know, Israel feels so isolated, and they're isolated in the sports venue as well. That's the only explanation, but purely from a, a history of Jews involved in NBA is concerned, you know, Blatt follows in the footsteps of uh, the Holtzmans and the Auerbachs and my friend Dolph Shays and others uh, who have coached in the NBA. Right, he is not... And say something else, as far as, again, as a former basketball coach, um, I have to say that uh, it looks like LeBron's doing a lot of the coaching. So, um, (laughs) uh, you know, be that as it may. I, I think, like everything in sports, it's bigger than what goes on on the court itself. It has something to do with the sense of where we are as a people in the eyes of the world. Right. No, so I would agree with you, and I, I do want to make mention that Coach Blatt was born in Massachusetts. He's a Bostonian, and um, he studied at Princeton. And there is, um, n- nevertheless, that has been glossed over or almost forgiven by the Israeli public who have, <clears throat> excuse me, adopted him um, as as one of his own, as if he was born there. Mm-hmm. And um, and love him that way and take this kind of pride. You know, there was a wonderful Wall Street Journal article last week um, where my uh, my good friend, the the sports rabbi Josh Halakman, was quoted in there. And um, there's a there's a great quote in in the first paragraph. I'm just pulling it up. Mm-hmm. Where a um, this this gentleman named Eli Mordechai, who's an owner of an electronics store in Tel Aviv, he comments. He says, "I never watched the NBA at that hour." But because of David Blatt, I've seen all of the playoffs. It's really, it's a little bit tiring at work, but it's worth it. And this is the best line. How many times does an Israeli reach the finals of the NBA? That's true. That's true. Right. That's, that's true. But, you know, another interesting aspect of this, um, uh, Blatt's Jewishness, as far as the American public is concerned, is not a story at all. And, in fact, to the American public, you have a situation where, um, two uh, coaches, two rookie coaches, right. who have right. a connection to the Middle East, because Steve Kerr's father, you may know, was, was a... assassinated uh, in Lebanon about 25 years ago. So you have that connection in terms of the, the problems in, in the Middle East. Right. His father was the president of the University uh, of Beirut. Right. I think the American University right. in Beirut, right. And he was, uh, he was assassinated, so he has this connection. And uh, Blatt's a, a, a good basketball man. He played for Pete Carrillo. I have to say that Kirill ran many of the patterns, many of the stuff that uh, Red Saratik was running at Yeshiva, or be with some better <laughs> players, be that, be that as it may. And Blatt played for a while in Israel. So he's been adopted. He has adopted Israel as his homeland appropriately, and the Israelis have, uh, have uh, adopted him as well. There's, a, there's definitely more than, than just coincidence. Um, well, at least you and I would look at it as more than coincidence that this story of Israeli pride overlaps with um, the FIFA, the the FIFA stories and the bid to oust Israel that um, was was pulled at the last second simply for from a from a political point of view because of everything that was going on at FIFA. This would never have passed. So let's take it off the table before it has a chance to fail. But nevertheless, this kind of humiliation through FIFA before. Last week's indictments, or a couple of weeks ago, sorry, and, uh, the, the indictments that took place a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. but the resignation of um, of the the chair of 
of FIFA and now this pride in David Blatt. I mean, it, it's more than coincidence from from the orthodox point of view. It's it's a it's a lovely lovely treat, but for, on a world stage, that's also part of why this timing is so important. Well, look, uh, as I said a moment ago, uh, wars and sports define community. Israel has not done well, to say the least, with international bodies. Uh, going back to the 72 Olympics, and in fact, we can go back to 36 to the Berlin Games, but let's just start with the 72 Olympics with the murder of Israeli athletes right. and jump forward 40 years where the IOC, International Olympic Committee, refused to have, uh, have an official uh, recognition of the murder of the athletes. And a great Jew named Bob Costas, who isn't a Jew, was the only one to uh, make some reference to the fact that this was the 40th yard site of the murder of the Israeli athletes. Mm. So we have not done well with international bodies. Uh, uh, the United Nations, the IOC, FIFA, all these things have been examples of, Jews, of Israel being defined, sadly, outside the, uh, uh, the community of nations. And I think, ironically, we, uh, we as supporters of Israel are very fortunate that the FIFA scandal interrupted this, uh, this move to basically ostracize Israel and put it in the same category that uh, South Africa was put in. As you probably know, with the, the end of apartheid in South Africa, one of the things that indicated that uh, uh, South Africa was readmitted to the family of nations was the fact that they had an integrated rugby match, international rugby match. The point I'm making is that uh, FIFA, IOC, United Nations have all been weighted against Israel, and it's almost miraculous that this scandal took place, which, as you said correctly, knocked the, uh, the Israel issue off the agenda of the uh, FIFA. And, uh, frankly, some of the people involved with FIFA beyond uh, uh, the president all had a high profile in supporting the Palestinian move to delegitimize Israel. So we're constantly dealing with efforts to delegitimize Israel. It happens on the political scene. And it happens in the sports thing. And I say all the time, sports is, is more important, the question of sports, not more important than when you'll win, whether you win or lose. More importantly, whether you're allowed to play mm. the game. And that's what this is all about. All about. So, there's, so I have two questions. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them one at a time. So would you agree with me then that this, this story about Coach Blatt is more about him being Israeli than him being about, than being about Jew, him being Jewish? Because there have been so many Jewish players in sports. But the fact that it's Israel, the fact that he is a citizen of Israel, that, that is where the shining star comes out. That's the ichor. That's the source of of the um, of the story in this case. Yes, I think I think it's a big story for Israel. I don't think it, I don't think it's a big story for the NBA. I don't think it's a big story for the the American public. And right. I think that that also indicates how we, if we're American Jews, are not part of the great debate that goes on in this country about minority groups, etc. So again, another another rookie coach right. uh, who played for Pete Carell, who grew up in Massachusetts is doing well against another rookie coach with the assistance of an extraordinarily talented African-American named LeBron James. He's terrific. He's, yeah. he's, just, uh, he's just remarkable. We could talk about sports all day, but this isn't about sports. This is about Correct. the realities of American Jewish life and Israeli life and about the differences between 
how American Jews, for the most part, feel much less pressure than the Israeli public and the Israeli government that's constantly under uh, under attack, even so, in the sports realm. I, What's question number two? Question number two was a reference you had made a minute ago was the opportunity to play, that everyone should be entitled to play, and that, that it's not about when, whether you win or lose, but that you're actually able to get on the court. And you've written about the numerous changes or the numerous issues that have come up through Yeshiva University and through Stern College and through other um, you know, instances where Jews have, have made... Um, have made history in terms of regulations because they either want to play it with a yarmulke or they want a woman wants to play with her head covered or mm-hmm. the bobby pins or whatever. So it's important to note that that the end result of um, of this issue is the right to be a part of of the pro, of the of the game itself, and the the irony is that the win versus the loss becomes inconsequential. It's the right to play. The right to play. So there, there, and it's not totally a Jewish story. I was recently on a boat ride with a fellow who was wearing a cap with a Y on it, and uh, I was wearing a different type of baseball cap, and he happened to come from Brigham Young, was oh, yeshiva. That's funny. And Brigham Young has a similar situation where they don't play on their Sabbath, uh. and the NCAA uh, has a rule that says that teams can... Uh, Appeal and they recognize the right of teams for religious reasons not to play on their their uh, holy days. So uh, you know, a couple, last year and against this year, the Yeshiva College um, men's tennis team made it to the NCAA Division Three tournament, and there was no question. There was no question. There's no real story here. There's no question here uh, that uh, we wouldn't be forced to play on the Sabbath or if not uh, forfeit the game. That's part of a tolerant, cultural, pluralistic America that we are we're part of. And, you know, I think it was two years ago, three years ago, there was a high school tournament in, um, in Dallas, Texas, and the Berrin School sure. made it to the semifinals. When they joined the league, they had no idea they'd have such a strong team. <laughs> so they get to the semifinals, and the game is supposed to be on Shabbat. They appeal to the association to move the game back to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The Christian school they were supposed to play says, we have no problem playing at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, let's play. The association says, no, you have to stand by the rules, we're not going to change the game. Make a long story short, um, another great Jew, Jeff Van Gundy, (laughs) Jeff Van Gundy said, "Let let them play when they can play. They get a temporary restraining order from the court, and the game is moved back to uh, 2 o'clock. They win the semifinals, and they lose the finals. Again, the win, wins or losses are right. inconsequential. The fact is that generally, spe- generally speaking, and I want to make this point, generally speaking, Jewish teams, religious teams, like the Mormons, likewise, can get an accommodation from the NCAA or local sports agencies. The big problem comes up where you have an exceptionally talented religious player who wants to do it on his or her own. There, it's a more complicated, uh, complicated dynamic. But all these things are interesting aspects of how comfortable and in some respects we're courted within America of today. Unfortunately, the same thing doesn't apply to Israel. Hmm. And that's what this story is all about. Professor Jeffrey Gorak is the Libby M. Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University. He joined us today to talk about FIFA, to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers, 
which I imagine most of my listeners are like, wow, Miriam, you're really tackling that one. But it's absolutely my pleasure. I also want to bring up American Pharaoh. The amazing thing about this horse, besides the fact that it won the Triple Crown, and besides the fact that it won the hearts of Americans. I mean, there was a story in the in the paper yesterday about, actually, sorry, it was a letter to the editor in the, in the New York Post. Yes, I read the New York Post. It was a letter to the editor in the New York Post about a man who says that he has not been um, excited about horse racing in a very, very, very long time, because frankly, it's horse racing. But he pulled over on the side of the road to hear the end of the Belmont Stakes, and it brought him to tears. And there was such pride in this horse. But for us, it's a Jewish story as well. I don't understand it. I don't understand (laughs) it. I don't understand horse racing at all. But I guess it's another indication that when a Jew in sports or Jewish, even Jewish owners. I was got, right. I, you know, I was just making the, the horse a Jew now. Um, uh, <laughs> it, it is, is high profile that there is a reaction on the part of, uh, uh, of Jews. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. You know, horse racing has declined significantly. If you went back 50 years, ironically, uh, the sports pages of the Post, the Daily Mirror of Blessed Memory, the, and all the other newspapers, the two sports that were covered most were horse racing and boxing. Wow. They've declined, they've declined uh, uh, a lot. But you're right. It's interesting that a horse, a horse would uh, evoke this sort of right. interest on the part of, uh, of Jews. Right. It's just it's so out of our sphere, so to speak. Do you know what I'm saying? But I think that, again, it, it, you look at the bigger picture and where we are in terms of BDS and in terms of Palestinian movements and in terms of anti-Semitism and the fact that you have all of these Americans rallying around this Jewish family and their horse. I, 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 it's part of the story. And of course, yes, in the New York area, uh, many of us got a kick and I, sorry for the horse uh, metaphor, but everybody got a kick out of the fact that the jockey was asked to go to the, uh, the kever of the Lubavitcher Rebbe the day before the the race last week. And so many people, you know, chuckled and maybe some sure plenty of people rolled their eyes and I'm sure many people were offended. And that's just the way it goes in the Jewish community. But nevertheless, there's still this, you know, religious aspect to it. And people questioned the whole Shabbos angle of it. But that wasn't the story for many. The story for many was that this was a Jewish family and everyone was rallying behind their horse. Well, I, I think the, the best story about the jockey is that he donated his purse right. to the City of Hope for cancer victims. So perhaps that the Filat, the, the Rebbe's Kever, evoked in him uh, a philanthropic impulse, mm. which I think is, is laudable. Uh, but beyond that, uh, American pharaoh, e- Egypt, uh, right. owned by Jewish owners. There's some irony to, yep. uh, to all of that. There certainly, there certainly is. It's amazing. You know, we, we joke about um, Jews in sports and how you, you need a Jew to, to be a doctor. You don't necessarily need him in the ring. Um, and obviously that's an exaggerated, exaggerated stereotype, and there are plenty of excellent Jewish athletes out there. But nevertheless, there is this pride, this continued connection that we take pride in every Jewish athlete. And, um, and it allows us to have a little bit of spark within the darkness. Well, again, I, I think it's, it's one of the stories of American Jewish history that a phenomenon called sports, which is basically unknown in, in Jewish history, at least for 1,500 years, 1,600 years or more, okay, 
become such a defining uh, aspect of our existence uh, in, in the United States. Now, in the 19th century, of course, there were Zionist clubs that compete because Jews in Germany and Austria and Hungary, places like that, were excluded from Gentile sports clubs, so they established their own clubs. But the fact that Jews get so involved in what is, you know, the American pastimes says a lot about uh, our desire to integrate and also raises questions about how you survive Jewishly in a world that mm-hmm. accepts you. Right. The, the sports world very accepting of Jews. And how do you balance your religious commitments with your interest in the most secular type of uh, activity? And that's, I, what I write, that's when I write about sports. That's what right. I write about. And I say that what I write about has very little to do with the outcomes, its processes, <laughs> its, uh, the involvement in sports, which is, which is so interesting. Right. No, it's fascinating and definitely a conversation between, between the two of us about the history of how athletes have integrated their religion and their passion for their sport is a definitely a great topic for another for another show because you and I would need another 30 minutes to cover that. Well, let's do it some other time, baby. My pleasure. You got it. Thank you so much, Professor Gorak. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Take care. Have a good day. You too. You've been listening to That's Live here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We have a full lineup, so I'm going to go through what you should expect for the rest of the day and certainly what not to miss. The live lunch starts in just a few minutes, hosted by Nahum from 11 to 1 p.m. Eastern time. And then the stunt show. Today at the stunt show, Mayor Ferdig debriefs Jew in the City's Allison Josephs about her interview this morning with Emily Stern, the daughter of Howard Stern, the king of radio. Well, I should say the king of non-Orthodox radio, we would say that. Rummy's like, yeah, something like that. That is his, what'd you say? He was the king of all media. Well, then we call Nahum the king of all Jewish media? That's a longer title. They'll discuss this weekend's Shabbaton in the Five Towns for Project Makom, where Jew in the City offers mentoring and information to Jews from strict Haredi communities who seek a more moderate lifestyle, plus the popular names for rabbis. A lion, a lion reads the latest book, reviews the latest book from OU Press. Jewish Action Magazine wins a big award, and the latest from Yachad and Yachad Summer Programs, plus some of the newest Jewish music. That's all today on The Stunt Show in only 60 minutes. That's, that's a packed show. Then tomorrow, then, sorry, spin class. Spin class today with Michael Fragan at 6 p.m. He takes a special look at the growing rift between the Rockland's Orthodox community and the local Republican Party with County Executive Ed Day, activist Benny Polachek of Colossal PR, and Republican strategist Bill O'Reilly. Oh, that is a, that is a phenomenal show. Tomorrow morning, Nahum is joined by Malcolm Holine at 7.40 in the morning for the weekly update. You do not want to miss Jame in the a.m. from 6 to 9 a.m. in the morning. And then Naomi presents Table for Two on Table for Two tomorrow morning. Are you, 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 you look like you were signaling me. No? Okay. Table for Two tomorrow morning on an epic show. They eat their way through the hour. You don't want to... Wow. Okay. You know what? I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I won't be able to be there. But you definitely won't, don't want to miss that program. That's from six. That, sorry. That's from uh, nine to ten o'clock tomorrow morning. Saturday night, Seagull, hosted by Avrami, starts around nine twenty post Shabbos. That's Eastern Time. Eternal Flame with Rabbi Y Y Jacobson and headlines with David Lichtenstein follows right afterwards. J M Sunday with Matis from seven to nine a.m. Eastern Time Sunday morning. Don't miss that as well. Today I leave you with Mishema Min by Eyal Golan. Popular. At Israeli soccer matches and possibly an anthem to be heard at Game 4 tonight? We shall see. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.
יש לכולנו מגדול ועד קטן, ימים יפים וגם פחות, וביניהם תשובה לכל השאלות. יש אלוהים, אחד גדול, ובעולם הזה נותן לנו הכל, בין אפלה לקרן את הנתיב אנחנו רק צריכים לבחור, וזה ידוע חיים ומתנה. הכל צפוי והרשות נתונה מי שמאמין לא מפחד את האמונה להיאבד ולנו יש את מלך העולם והוא שומר אותנו מכולם מי שמאמין לא מפחד את אחד ועוד אחד זה סוד ההצלחה עם ישראל לא יוותר תמיד על המפה אנחנו נישאר וזה ידוע חיים ומתנה הכל צפוי והרשות נתונה Oh, man.